Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast, Episode 27, Soviet Lunar Landing Program. When I last left off with the Soviet manned space program in Episode 23, Sergei Korolev's efforts to build a new heavy lift rocket, the N-1 rocket, was going nowhere. The N-1 was key to all of Korolev's dreams for the future of Soviet manned spaceflight. The N-1 rocket was what would allow for a manned circumlunar mission and perhaps eventually a manned landing on the lunar surface. Despite receiving government approval and preparing the technical documents to permit manufacture of the rocket, however, the actual manufacturing of the rocket had stalled by 1964. The Soviet military, the financier behind rocket development, was simply uninterested in the N-1 rocket. The Soviet strategic missile forces did not have a need for such a heavy lift rocket for national defense. So, instead, Korolev tried to give purpose to his N-1 rocket by proposing a Soviet lunar landing program to Premier Khrushchev in June 1963. If the N-1 rocket had a purpose, then presumably the funding to the rocket would start flowing. But Khrushchev was in no position to back a Soviet-manned lunar landing program in mid-1963 due to the nation's economic situation. The situation abruptly changed, though, in March 1964, less than a year later, when Korolev again sought Khrushchev's backing for a manned lunar landing program. This time, Khrushchev gave Korolev a political commitment to support a Soviet-manned lunar landing program to compete with Apollo. The reason behind Khrushchev's change of mind remains unclear. It is possible that Korolev addressed Khrushchev's concerns about cost by assuring him that the Soviet lunar landing program would cost less than the American effort. He may have also been interested in maintaining the appearance of Soviet supremacy in space. Indeed, two months earlier, on January 29, 1964, the United States launched the SA-5 mission. This was the first time that a Saturn I rocket had launched with a live second stage, allowing it to reach orbit. This launch also marked the first time since Sputnik that the United States had overtaken the Soviet Union in rocket lift capability. So it is possible that in this context, Khrushchev wanted to reinvigorate Soviet rocket development by backing a lunar landing mission. Another factor, perhaps a minor one, may have been increasing clamor by other Soviet rocket engineers for a lunar landing program. For years after NASA began planning a manned lunar landing, Soviet rocket engineers were rather complacent. 
Korolev was the first Soviet rocket designer to propose a lunar landing program, and he did so only in June 1963. By the beginning of 1964, however, other designers began to introduce their own proposals for a lunar landing program. For example, Mikhail Yangel, one of the Soviet Union's top three rocket designers, proposed using his own R-56 heavy lift rocket for lunar exploration. Vladimir Chelmy, the Soviet Union's other leading rocket designer, also had concepts for a lunar landing program. His plans, however, were less developed at the time. The fact that all three of the Soviet Union's top rocket designers were pitching a Soviet lunar landing program to Khrushchev may have helped convince him that such a program was feasible and that it was the natural next step for the Soviet rocket industry. Yet another factor to consider was President Kennedy's proposal for a joint Soviet-American lunar landing mission during his speech to the UN General Assembly in September 1963. As I mentioned last time, Although Khrushchev initially ignored Kennedy's proposal, by November 1963, Khrushchev indicated that he was open to the idea of a joint lunar landing effort. So it is possible that Kennedy's proposal may have gotten Khrushchev thinking that the Soviet Union probably should have its own lunar landing program. Whatever the reason for Khrushchev's change in thinking, his political commitment to Korolev's lunar landing proposal in March 1964 was an important step. But this also did not mean that the lunar landing program could begin. To do that, the Soviet government still had to approve the funds. Korolev began writing to key members of the Soviet government. One of these individuals was Leonid Brezhnev, who would eventually overthrow Khrushchev in late 1964. In his letters, Korolev complained that repeated cuts in funding to his N-1 rocket program had delayed production schedules. He also warned that the Americans were moving quickly, and that NASA might even achieve an early lunar landing in 1967. That year, being the 50th anniversary of the Soviet Revolution, would be an embarrassment for the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union was to forestall that outcome, they needed to fund their own lunar exploration program, and that required the N-1 rocket. On June 19, 1964, Korolev got his wish. The Central Committee of the Communist Party and the Council of Ministers, the two highest authorities in the Soviet Union, issued decrees approving and guaranteeing funding for the N-1 program. The decrees also set a schedule for flight testing of the N-1 rocket from 1965 to 1966. A total of 16 production versions of the N-1 rocket were then to be manufactured in 1966 through 1968. In light of the total standstill in the production of parts for the N-1 program 
1963 and the first half of 1964 caused by the lack of funding, this new production schedule was probably optimistic. But at least now, things were headed in the right direction for Korolev. On July 25th, 1964, the Military Industrial Commission, which oversaw the Soviet ballistic missile industry, also authorized Korolev's lunar landing proposal. So now Korolev had official government support for both the building of the N1 rocket to get to the moon and the goal of landing on the moon. In popular culture, the myth that the Soviet Union did not intend to compete with the United States in achieving a manned lunar landing first is sometimes still heard. That myth, though, is, well, a myth. The Soviet government very clearly issued orders of their own for a lunar landing program to compete with Apollo. Now, they did so three years after President Kennedy's State of the Union address in May 1961, which started the United States' own efforts to land on the moon, but the Soviets were definitely in the race. Within months after the official government approval of Korolev's N1 program and the lunar landing proposal, however, both plans were under serious threat from two developments. The first was the cancellation of Korolev's Soyuz circumlunar program, and the second was Chelomey's proposal for a new rocket, the UR-700, to replace Korolev's N1 rocket. Let's start with the first threat to Korolev's plans. If you'll recall from back in episode 15, I discussed how in April 1962, the Soviet government approved Korolev's plan to perform a manned circumlunar mission using a second-generation Soyuz spacecraft. After two years of development, on August 3, 1964, the Central Committee in the Council of Ministers canceled the Soyuz circumlunar mission. The government instead decided to back a different manned circumlunar program proposed by Chelomey using the spacecraft called the LK-1. The Soviet government's decision to assign a manned lunar landing program to Korolev in June and then reassign the manned circumlunar flight program to Chelomey in August was mind-bogglingly inefficient. The circumlunar flight program would obviously develop equipment and experience that would be useful to a manned lunar landing program. For one thing, the rocket needed to get a spacecraft all the way into space for a circumlunar flight would also probably be the same or similar rocket used to get a spacecraft to the moon for a landing mission. Life support systems, navigation, long-range communication systems could also probably be leveraged from one program to another. And yet, the Soviet Union chose to assign the goal for a circumlunar mission and a lunar landing mission to separate programs headed by rival engineers who would not collaborate. 
by taking the circumlunar program from Korolev and reassigning it to Chelemy, all the Soviet government did was to make the development of equipment necessary for a lunar landing more difficult for Korolev. There would simply be less funding and fewer opportunities to develop and test equipment needed for a lunar landing mission. Why the Soviet government decided to treat circumlunar flight and lunar landing as two separate programs is not entirely clear, but there are a couple of likely explanations. First, Korolev's engineering bureau was under a heavy workload at the time. In addition to the Soyuz circumlunar program that the government had approved in April 1962, the government also gave Korolev's engineers responsibility over the Voshod project in April 1964. I will get into the Voshod missions in later episodes, but these were basically a continuation of the Vostok missions for manned space flights in Earth orbit. On top of these programs, in June 1964, the government gave Korolev responsibility for the lunar landing program. Thus, by mid-1964, Korolev's engineering bureau was responsible for no less than three manned spaceflight programs. This was on top of other work that Korolev's engineers were working on, such as unmanned probes to other planets. Thus, reassigning the much-delayed circumlunar program to Chelemy may have been a way to reduce the workload on Korolev's overburdened engineers. Another reason for reassigning the circumlunar program to Chelemy may have been that Korolev's proposal for a circumlunar flight using the Soyuz spacecraft was incredibly complicated. Remember that from episode 15, a circumlunar mission under Korolev's proposal would have required no less than five rockets and five docking missions in Earth orbit. Four of the launches and dockings would be construction of a space train or a spacecraft complex for the journey to the moon. The fifth launch and docking would be to bring a crew aboard. Chelemy had long criticized Korolev's proposal as unwieldy and inefficient. His proposal for a circumlunar flight was to use a single rocket, his UR-200 rocket, to launch the LK-1 spacecraft into orbit. In September 1964, just three months after Korolev received official support, for the N-1 program and the lunar landing program, Korolev faced yet another serious threat to his ambitions. Chelemy made a bid to take the manned lunar landing program away from Korolev and to assert himself as the dominant engineer in Soviet manned spaceflight. Chelemy made his pitch to take over the manned lunar landing program directly to Premier Khrushchev on September 24, 1964. At the time, Khrushchev and high-level defense officials were visiting to Uritam to observe the launch of a series of new intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
Among the missiles being tested that day were Chelemy's UR-200 rocket and Yangle's R-36 rocket, both of which had been proposed back at that meeting in Patsunda when Korolev and Valentin Glushko had had their spat in front of Soviet leadership. The flight demonstration actually turned out to be a bit of an embarrassment for Chelemy. His UR-200 rocket failed to launch, whereas Yangle's R-36 rocket worked perfectly. The failure put in doubt the reliability of the UR-200, which was key to Chelemy's circumlunar flight program and his plans to build larger rockets based on the UR-200 to dominate the Soviet manned spaceflight programs. In fact, the UR-200 would be cancelled shortly after this. But all was not lost. During Khrushchev's visit, Chelemate showed models of his plans for the UR-500 rocket, which would have been even more powerful. When Khrushchev asked if there were any other plans, Chelemay unveiled his design for yet a third rocket, the UR-700. This rocket was initially proposed to put out some 9 million pounds of thrust. For comparison, NASA's Saturn V rocket for the Apollo missions was to put out 7.5 million pounds of thrust. The UR-700 would be capable of sending Soviet cosmonauts to the moon. Chelemey had begun designing the UR-700 out of disdain for Korolev's N-1 rocket, which was inferior to the Saturn V. Indeed, the Saturn V was powerful enough to permit NASA to perform a lunar landing with just lunar orbital rendezvous. By contrast, under Korolev's initial lunar landing plans, the Soviet Union would need to rely on both Earth orbital rendezvous and lunar orbital rendezvous due to the weaker nature of the N-1 rocket. In other words, under Korolev's plans, the spacecraft for the lunar mission would have to be sent into Earth orbit piecemeal and, like Apollo, only a smaller, dedicated lunar lander would reach the moon's surface. With Chelemy's UR-700 rocket, however, a direct ascent to the moon without Earth orbital rendezvous would be possible, making a mission to the moon cheaper and achievable sooner. Chelemy's decision to pitch the UR-700 rocket to Khrushchev during a state visit to the launch site was not unlike Korolev's own pitch to Khrushchev way back in February 1956 to launch Sputnik. Back then, in an eerily similar scene, Khrushchev was visiting Korolev's engineers to congratulate them on the recent success of the R-5 missile launch. Korolev took that opportunity to unveil a gigantic model of the R-7 rocket, which they then mentioned could launch a satellite into space before the Americans. Just as Khrushchev had been intrigued by the R-7 rocket back in 1956, 
on that fateful day that eventually helped spark the space race, Khrushchev, now in 1964, was again intrigued by the UR-700 rocket being proposed by Chelemy. He asked Chelemy to prepare the technical documentation for the UR-700 rocket. He then directed the Military Industrial Commission to perform a comparison of Korolev's N-1 rocket and Chelemy's UR-700 rocket for purposes of a lunar landing mission. That commission would then decide which rocket should be used for a lunar landing. Here, the total disorganization and lack of direction for the Soviet space program is on full display once again. In June and July 1964, the entire Soviet government, Khrushchev, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, the Council of Ministers, and the Military Industrial Commission fully backed Korolev's N-1 rocket in the lunar landing program. But just three months later, Korolev's lunar landing program was already in doubt. Not because of technical difficulties, but because of indecision in Soviet political leadership. This is not the first time we've seen this level of indecision plaguing the Soviet space program. Remember that Korolev first obtained approval for his N-1 rocket and manned spaceflight program back in June 1960. But less than a year later, in May 1961, the Soviet government revoked the approval for the N-1 rocket. Instead, the government decided to back Chelemy's UR-200 rocket. Then, in mid-1964, the Soviet government flip-flopped and decided to support Korolev's N-1 rocket, and shortly decided to cancel Chelemy's UR-200. But before the ink on the decrees memorializing this flip-flop in policy could even dry, the government put the N-1 rocket in doubt again, this time by considering the UR-700 rocket as a replacement for the N-1. This time, however, the N-1 program was not put entirely on hold as it had been in May 1961. But by funding efforts to develop both the N-1 rocket and the UR-700 rocket at the same time for the very same mission, the Soviet government would strain resources to the detriment of both programs. The fact that a competitive proposal for an alternative rocket could even be made, and repeatedly so, after the N-1 rocket was already approved was a unique feature of the Soviet space program. And the fact that Soviet political leadership would repeatedly entertain such challenges to approved programs was mind-numbingly stupid and inefficient. Especially since Khrushchev could apparently be convinced to change national policy after being razzle-dazzled by some rocket models. This lack of leadership, more than anything else, 
will cause the Soviets to lose the space race. Indeed, not only would the Soviets lose the space race, but they would fall so far behind that a myth will eventually form that the Soviets never even tried to compete with the United States in a lunar landing effort. This myth has been perpetuated by, in part, the secrecy surrounding the Soviet space program, some of which still remains even after the fall of the Soviet Union, and the fact that Khrushchev, up until late 1963, was saying that the Soviet Union had no intention to land cosmonauts on the moon, which was true, since the decision wasn't made until mid-1964. But the Soviets also never achieved a circumlunar flight, or even launched a powerful enough rocket to permit a manned lunar landing. Had the Soviets completed at least one of these major steps essential to a lunar landing program, then it would have been harder for the Soviets to deny that they ever tried to reach the moon. The reasons the Soviets never achieved any one of the major steps toward a lunar landing, however, is because they fell flat on their face right at the start of their effort by splitting the lunar landing mission and the circumlunar mission into two separate programs, and then divided their resources to fund the simultaneous development of two moon rockets. This is not to say that the Soviets didn't face severe technical and engineering difficulties that probably would have prevented them from landing on the moon before the United States at this point anyways. But poor political leadership meant that Korolev's engineers never had sufficient resources to resolve these technical and engineering difficulties. So, what were some of the engineering challenges facing the Soviets? Well, the biggest challenge that the Soviets faced in 1964 was the lack of a sufficiently powerful rocket to permit a manned lunar landing. Korolev's initial concepts for a manned lunar landing had always relied on Earth orbital rendezvous. Using the same plan as his Soyuz circumlunar program, Korolev planned to construct a massive 200-ton spaceship in Earth orbit piecemeal by launching four N1 rockets. When the Soviet government approved of Korolev's lunar landing program in June and July 1964, however, the plan for the landing on the moon shifted over to Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. The decision to shift from EOR to LOR was likely to simplify the mission and reduce the cost of the lunar landing program. There was also probably an inclination to simply mirror NASA's technical decisions. As with NASA, the only other mode of getting to the moon, direct ascent, was out of the question, since the N1 rocket had even less lift capability than the Saturn V. By choosing to go to the moon with lunar orbital rendezvous, however, 
Korolev's engineers created a seemingly insurmountable problem for themselves. Due to weight limitations, they could not design a set of spacecraft capable of a lunar landing mission based on the LOR mission profile. To solve this problem, the engineers' only options were really to minimize the weight and size of the spacecraft as much as possible and to maximize the lift capability of the N1 rocket as much as possible. The engineers tried to do both. On the negative side of the equation, that is cutting weight from the spacecraft, Korolev early on made the decision to carry only two cosmonauts to the moon, unlike Apollo which would carry three astronauts. This would help conserve on the size of the spacecraft and the resources that the spacecraft would need to carry. Studies showed, however, that the lightest the Soviet spacecraft could get was somewhere between 95 and 100 tons. This was already significantly lighter than the Apollo spacecraft, which were going to be around 120 tons. Keep in mind also that the United States was much further ahead in the miniaturization of electronics, meaning pound for pound, the Apollo spacecraft had more capability than the Soviet spacecraft. Korolev's lunar spacecraft, known as the L-1, would only have minimal capabilities. Even with a minimal spacecraft, the weight problem remained. The N-1 rocket, as designed in early 1964, could only lift 75 tons into orbit. The rocket was eventually redesigned, first to increase lift capability to 85 tons, and then to 95 tons. Korolev's engineers made a variety of changes to the N1 rocket to increase lift. The main change was to increase the number of engines on the rocket's first stage, from 24 to 30. They also changed some specifications for the mission profile, such as setting a lower orbital altitude to conserve fuel. This, however, still only gave the N1 rocket a theoretical payload capacity of between 92 and 95 tons. With the spacecraft expected to weigh between an absolute minimum of 95 and 100 tons, Korolev's lunar landing mission was operating on the thinnest of margins. In fact, there are stories that Korolev's engineers were given bonuses and awards for every kilogram they could extract from the spacecraft. With these engineering difficulties, there will be as yet more political challenges to Korolev's lunar landing program in 1965, but we will revisit those in a future episode. The important thing now is that by mid-1964, three years after NASA started working to land on the moon, the Soviets were finally setting a lunar landing as their goal as well. But 
only days after the Soviets set this goal, the turning point in the space race, when the United States finally pulls ahead, will come. This turning point will come from the unlikeliest of sources, the so far total failure of the Ranger program. More about that next time.